Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, you wanna? You know what you I hope? Kick off the, I I wanna what? I wanna etch a gold disc of all our outtakes and put that on the next thing we float into deep space. That would be so. So funny. when aliens find it, they'll be like, "Hell yeah!" Not only were there intelligent life forms, but these fuckers is funny. We were gonna blow their planet up, but now we see it's a source <laughs> of comedy. Not only were there intelligent life forms, but there was dumbass life forms too. <laughs> we could we could easily <laughs> conquer them and make them our court jesters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Welcome to Two Designers Walking to a Bar. A place where pop culture creatives discover design icons that make us tick. And we share a few cocktails in the process. All right, Todd. Well, the glass is clinking and the tabs growing can mean only one thing. We're back in the bar for the second half of our second season. And we're happy to be back with you, our favorite drinking buddies. So grab yourself a cold bud, find your favorite earbuds, and take another stroll down memory lane with us back in the bar. Okay, Todd. So we're back here in the bar. We're with our friends, our faithful listeners for our best of season two, uh, part two. There's a lot of twos in there. That's right. Yeah. People are thinking you're already going on too, too long. That's right. <laughs> Let's jump into this thing. <laughs> you know what goes great with an audio podcast? A podcast about books. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was talking about my book, and I was talking about the design of my book, just for the listeners so they could really get the feel for what I was talking about. I held the book really, really close to the microphone the whole time. Oh, okay, okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you love that book. You love oh, my goodness. The Onion, our, dumb, our dumb, century. dumb Century. I And I said this, there's no shame in my game. I'll say it again on uh, the podcast right now. My house is burning to the ground. This is one of the few things I'm yanking out uh, with me when I jump out the window. I love. Never this mind book so your much. grandma and your hobbled son, and uh, and your wife that's bedridden. You're gonna grab the book. They are ambulatory. This book is not. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Anyway, uh, this well, gem, you... <laughs> this uh, this cultural touchstone of mine that I will be buried with. Um, I really need to talk about jump Not in. Not if and I get talking. to it before you get married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why is Todd taking so long at Elliot's casket? <laughs> uh, he's really he's really broken up over uh, Elliot not That's being able right. to host with him anymore. That's right. And why is he slinking away with something in his coat? <laughs> but uh, anyway, getting into this, Todd, we need to get serious. We're talking about the onion. Okay. Okay. All right. Come on. We are. We are. All right, so I really feel we need to jump in and just give a little bit of background on this book. Um, okay. Because this book kind of appeared out of nowhere, so to speak. Uh, you know, The Onion has released a, a lot of books, but this was the very first one. And The Onion wasn't known, you know, 20-odd years ago for books. You know, they were just a weekly newspaper and mm-hmm, really kind of mm-hmm. getting started with a website. So let's jump in and let's learn a little bit about the book. So the book is, in short... A work of genius. And by that I mean, if my house were to catch on fire, this is one of the things I'm bringing with me. Damn. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's quite the endorsement there. It is. It is. So you're probably wondering, what makes this book so great? Yeah, why? Well, I've thought a lot about this, and I can narrow it down to really three reasons. There's probably actually a million reasons, but <laughs> for the mercy yeah. of both you and our listeners, <laughs> I'll narrow it down to only three, okay? So... The design throughout this book is spot on. So they did an amazing, amazing job of mimicking 
the look of newspapers like the New York Times and USA Today. So depending upon the era, um, you know, the newspaper is of that time and it is brilliant. And also the writing is brilliant. Not only the subject matter, which of course has to be spot on for the period, right? So right. they're lampooning different current events for each of the years they're they're profiling. And we'll get into some of the uh, specifics on that in just a little bit. But also, as we talked about earlier with AP style, the editorial style here is amazingly accurate. And then the third thing is the humor. So mm-hmm. good humor mm-hmm. is incredibly challenging because it really needs to walk that tightrope of believability and parody, as we've talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. There's oh, got to yeah. be some level of plausibility. Elliot, your, your love affair with this book is, is, you know, obviously coming through. Some of the stories that you, you told me and our listeners about the, the locomotives being skeptical of the flying machine. Yeah, the locomotive um, scientists, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> world's, world's largest metaphor hits an iceberg. I'm not going right, to go into all right. that, but you had some, some awfully uh, interesting article examples. Yes, yeah, there's, there's one. I mean, there are so many that are wonderful, and we talk about them in the full episode, but I want to... Uh, revisit one of my favorites and I think one of the reasons is because it involves a a turn of phrase that a lot of people use every day and may not know the origins Mm of Mm -hmm. Um, so let's jump in and uh, you know we've talked about mascots before we've talked about you know product mascots and that sort of thing and this is a perfect example of weaving two of our favorite loves uh, together in uh, a single pop culture nugget so uh, pop culture reference here. So Jonestown, mm-hmm. we all remember mm-hmm. the Jonestown, the phrase uh, drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Hey, Kool-Aid. Drinking the Kool-Aid, yeah. Anthropomorphic juice pitcher among dead in Jonestown cult suicide. And again, the brilliant oh. thing about this oh. is, uh, you know, they have the picture in, in French Guiana of, uh, of all the people, but about two thirds of the way back in the distance, you see the, the glass pot belly of the Kool-Aid man <laughs> lying oh, amongst the dead. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's horribly uh, fun. So in the case of the book that I brought to, uh, to the bar was the Batman book by Chip Kidd. Yeah. Uh, Chip Kidd, obviously, he's a well-known book designer, mm-hmm. um, art director, and Batman collector, which is uh, exactly the only thing we have in common, he and I. But what I was talking about and uh, in sort of the way they treated things was this beauty of the objects. Um, they were photographed, they were illustrated, they were used as sort of these objects to art you know these these sort of worn you could see the love in them oh yeah well yeah why don't we listen to the clip how about that and the cool thing about this is it's not a it's not a collectibles book like a catalog where it shows like oh batman toy radio from 1972 they're shot like objects of art they're beautiful um they're shot by a photographer named jeff spears they're close up. You get to see the texture of these things. You get to see this this kind of wornness of there, and it's it's just captivating. It's you look at this and you just see these these things that have a life of their own. Okay, Todd. So we're talking about um, how these objects are are shot and and how they look and why they were included. You know, you really do a wonderful job getting into that, but. Mm-hmm. Of course, the the whole the way this whole book starts, the way it gets going is uh, <laughs> an odd description of a single object that's for mm-hmm. sale, mm-hmm. and the 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 phrase that's used could really go in a lot of different directions. Right. It uh, a. A description of something that ultimately does not describe what it was meant to describe. And it's just perfect in talking about that relationship that uh, obsessive collectors have with uh, buying things. So here I actually, and it's it's a, an excerpt from the book. So if you mm-hmm. recall, I actually read that. So let's take a listen. 
The book starts with a phone call between a passionate collector and kind of a disinterested seller who is advertising a floppy thing. A, f- a floppy thing? A floppy thing, yeah. <laughs> okay. And I'll, I'll read. This is how the book opens. Okay. Hello? Hi, I saw your ad. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in number 88. Yeah. Is it sold yet? Let me check. Dot, 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 dot. No. Could you tell me more about it? It's a floppy thing from the 60s without the stick. Uh, I see. Could you be a little more specific? What do you mean? (laughs) Well, what was it for? You know, it was a floppy thing, like from Carnival. It was on a stick and you wave it around. Floppy. Nice piece. Scarce. In good condition? Oh, yeah, great shape. A little repair on the wing. Can't tell, though. Great display piece. Can you do any better on the price? No, not really. Oh. Will you take a check? (laughs) Okay, so in the episode 21 about great books, uh, great design books, you were talking about some of the the cultural high points uh, that the onion pokes fun at. And episode 22, uh, which is titled Iconic Images, I love this episode. I love this episode because it talks about one of my favorite subjects ever. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, Iwo Jima. Well, that too, but Bigfoot. You're into Bigfoot? Well, don't you remember, like, when I was asking, I asked the dumbest question on on that podcast. Elliot... Have you ever seen that picture of Bigfoot? <laughs> <laughs> you did. You did. Yeah, we were. We, that's right. We were talking iconic images. And uh, out of all, you said no to the Hindenburg explosion. Right, You, know, you right. said no to uh, Lucky Lindy after his first flight across, uh, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. You said no to just so many things. So you could say yes to the image that was near and dear to your heart. Right. And, you know, I think. I was so into it, I also said, I described in detail the walk of the she Bigfoot. Oh, yeah. And if you remember, yeah. I used, I actually used the word sachet. So, let's listen. Um, but you know the, you know, you know Bigfoot, right? You've seen pictures of Bigfoot, right? You've seen statues of Bigfoot. You've seen mugs, t-shirts, hipster um, wear. There's a, a musical festival called Sasquatch Festival. Bigfoot's pretty hip and cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've spent some time in the Pacific Northwest. I've uh, brought back some Bigfoot souvenirs. All right, so I want to talk about frame 352 taken from the 59 seconds of footage shot by Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. It was shot on October 20th, 1967 in Northern California. Do you know the image I'm talking about? The one where uh, Bigfoot's kind of yes. strolling. It's yes. a grainy image. Yes. Yeah, it's a dry creek bed, fallen trees, rocks, autumn foliage in the background, this dark brown hairy figure with breasts walking away from the viewer. Turns to look back in mid-stride, left arm and right leg forward, right arm and left leg behind. Just sashaying along the dry creek bed. All right, you remember, I mean, I really, I really got into the research on this one. You did. You went deep. And you know, I want to just say that if you're skipping the episode, go back and listen to it because I'm fair and balanced. I didn't present... Is Bigfoot real? Is is Bigfoot a hoax? I presented both sides. I you presented did. the you scientific did. explanation from cryptozoologist. And I don't know if you remember, Elliot, there was one thing that was missing from Pat the Bigfoot. Well, the one thing I remember missing was uh, the call we were supposed to get from Discovery for our own series. <laughs> that too. But... Take a listen to this clip, and you can hear what cryptozoologists were skeptical about. But this is the biggie. This was the real one for skeptics. Okay. The picture of Patty the Bigfoot had no crack. Her butt wasn't separated enough. Hmm. So that's what cryptozoologists point to as, this isn't real because that ape doesn't have a crack. 
So there wasn't enough junk in Bigfoot's trunk? There was a lot of junk, but it was not separated into sections. Hmm. Okay, Todd, so let's just say, given the task, the, the task we gave ourselves for iconic images, um, I, I'm not going to say you didn't rise to the challenge. Let's just say you did it in your own unique way. I did it with, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, of things rising or making something risen. I thought raised. you brought some elegance. Yeah, things being uh, yeah, raised. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm raising a point right now, which is, right. folks, you can fast forward through Todd's part and just, just stick with mine, <laughs> I think is what we're agreeing on here. Uh, yes. So in all seriousness, I chose an image that I guarantee everyone listening has to be familiar with from so many different uh, points of exposure really over your entire life. I mean, I don't... Do you remember the first time you saw the Iwo Jima flag raising? It's just kind of this thing that's always been around. Yeah, it is. I I don't. I, I actually don't. And, you know, truthful for me, I probably saw that image in a, a three-dimensional um, sculpture somewhere before I actually mm. saw the photograph. So it's it's so embedded in our um, in our lives, but you brought some really interesting backstory of not only about the flag raising, but why it was there and what that environment was like. Yeah. So let's jump in and uh, let's learn a little bit about the image itself. This is, without argument, one of the most iconic photos that's ever been taken, certainly in American history, right? Mm -hmm. We see it everywhere. And it just remains an enduring image of American men at war and is probably the most famous photo from World War II. Um, you mentioned the sailor kissing the, the gal, the nurse in Times Square. That's probably the second most famous photo, I would think, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So where did this photo come from? Like, what's the origin story? So this photo was taken by Joe Rosenthal, who is a photographer with the Associated Press. And he took the photo on February 23rd, 1945, okay? So that was a Friday. Mm -hmm. On that Sunday, so two days later, on the 25th, it appeared in newspapers everywhere. I mean, every front page everywhere, any major newspaper. New York Times, Washington Post. I mean, you name the paper, this wire photo was on the front page. I mean, and in fact, it was so impactful it is the only photo in the history of, of photojournalism to have won the Pulitzer the same year it was published. Okay, so I know I went through Lowbrow Town on that episode with <laughs> Low the picture Brow. Bigfoot. Lowbrow Town. You almost hit your own mailbox when you did, drove off I the did. road in <laughs> yeah, Lowbrow yeah. Town. Yeah. Um, but here's what I'll say. We had a little bit of some commonality because... There was a tiny bit of a backstory to the flag being raised that was just slightly produced. Now, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. We could say it was a little bit of a of a photo op. I mean, it was certainly mm -hmm, an organic mm -hmm. moment. I mean, there was literally um, a war going on, and this flag being raised, the famous photo you're aware of, was not signifying as we know, the end of the war, it wasn't even signifying the end of the battle that was happening on this island. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But let's uh, let's give it a listen real quick. You know, this was very spontaneous. They'd snatched this first flag off the nearest boat, transport boat, whatever, gave it to the soldiers, stormed the hill, put this thing up as a symbol. Well, it worked as a symbol for people sort of already on the island or in close proximity to the mountain. But, as you also discussed, there were other people coming. So, mm -hmm. the noteworthy flag, the one that we're very, very aware of, happened in the early afternoon. So, the first flag was small. It was way too small. So, it wasn't a good symbol. So, people, uh, you know, the American forces, word had spread, as we mentioned earlier, guys were cheering. So, people were aware of this lifting the spirits of the soldiers, but something else needed to be done. There needed to be a better symbol. Enter Captain Dave Severance. So, under mm -hmm. orders from Lieutenant Colonel Johnson, 
he sent Marines back to the top of Mount Suribachi to plant a bigger flag. So, Todd, let's pivot here to our our next episode, episode 23, Rocking Logos. We both had a blast working on this I love this this episode. episode. Yeah. And um, both of the bands we happen to choose... Contrasting with Iwo Jima, you know, over the course of the next 30 years, let's say, our our nation went through a lot of changes. I think mm-hmm. we can agree on that, mm-hmm. political and otherwise. And I think really you kind of started to get these cracks in, in everything a little bit, right? The facade, mm-hmm. sort mm-hmm. of the Leave it to Beaver era, the post-World War II era for a lot of people it really wasn't all it was cracked up to be and there started to be as a result of that these movements i mean we're certainly mm-hmm, all familiar mm-hmm. with the beats and later uh, the hippies and woodstock and all those sorts of things but let's go just a little bit later and this is something that's in in both of our wheelhouses punk music yeah you're right and you know how much i love talking about a creative hot spot when things come together exactly the the world and sort of um, turmoil that you talked about it was all exemplified right there in Greenwich Village in the early to mid 70s mm-hmm. when when the band the Ramones was was getting kicked off uh, well here's a clip just giving us a little sense of place at that time there was a lot of live music going on in Manhattan In Lower Manhattan at Max's Kansas City, the Atlanta Rhythm section was on the second night of a three-night stand. Further uptown in Central Park at the rink, they were jamming to the Four Seasons with Jay and the Americans. A little bit of a retro vibe on that one, I think. Mm. Even further uptown at 125th Street in Harlem, the Citadel of Soul, known as the Apollo Theater, they were going to tear it up that night because Ike and Tina Turner Review was there. So you've got this crazy clash of music all over Manhattan. But way, way, way down in Greenwich Village, it was hot and humid, particularly on the Bowery, where it always smelled like piss and old beer. Probably old piss and old beer. Kind of like our bar. Yeah, right, right, right. But, you know, that didn't matter to the crowds that are packing the legendary CBGB. They were used to this. They were always there. They were always looking at bands that were from the neighborhood. And that night, August 16th, was no different. They were there to see local neighborhood favorites, Blondie. So what's kind of cool is on that August night, a new band from Queens was going to open for Blondie, someone that no one had ever heard of. And you're, you know who we're talking about. We've already announced this. But this was their first performance ever. The four guys, they were different, crazy different. They shared the same look, long dark hair, black leather jackets, white T-shirts, torn jeans, Chuck Taylor sneakers. They were odd looking, and they sounded like nothing else the locals had experienced. Again, love talking about that environment. But the episode was about logos, and Arturio Vega, the guy that designed the Ramones logo, uh, he referred to them as the All-American Band and changed the symbolism for the presidential seal uh, since he thought the Ramones represented the All-American Band and the presidential seal was All-American, changed that to make sort of a unique take on the Ramones logo. Let's hear a little about that. He based this logo, what he did, you know, he obviously he saw the great seal and he took a self-portrait in a Times Square photo booth, which, ew, for one thing, <laughs> um, and, and it was just of his midsection and he's wearing an eagle belt buckle. So uh, from the eagle belt buckle, you know, again, took a Times Square photo booth picture, mm-hmm. he replaced the sign of peace, uh, which is the olive branch in uh, the Great Seal, uh, in the eagle's dexter talon with an apple branch. And see, I learned some cool words too while I was looking at yeah, this. When uh, you're talking de- about the silk, dexter, dude, and that would sinister. be how how that would be an amazing band name, Dexter Talon. Yeah, or a okay, comic, so, or like a, an antihero in a comic book, maybe. 
Yeah, so the, so the eagle has two talons, a dexter talon and a sinister talon. Ooh, these I are, like that even so, more. Yeah, and these come from the Latin names of like destiny, um, distinction, direction, and sinister. I, it means something, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, so it probably means place. left and right, I would think. I think it does. I think it does in, in, in Latin. And anyway, so he replaced the olive branch with an apple branch because that's all American. The Ramones were as American as apple pie. And in the left talon, the sinister talon, he replaced the arrows with a baseball bat to symbolize particularly Johnny Ramone's love of the all-American sport. And of course, you know, great Ramone song, Beat on the Brat with a baseball bat. (laughs) (laughs) And in the eagle's beak is a scroll and instead of saying e pluribus unum it reads hey ho let's go which was the opening lyrics from the band's first signal blitzkrieg bop now originally though this is what was kind of funny i think this is more hilarious arturo had the phrase look out below in the eagle's scroll coming from its mouth which is funny because when you think about the majesty of a bald eagle pooping on people you know that's, <laughs> which, which i'm sure that? punk punk thought you know the government and the man was doing on a daily basis right 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 okay todd so you're talking about logo design the ramones being the all-american band so the logo for the Ramones, obviously, for people who have never seen it, the first time you do see it, it's going to still look pretty familiar to you. It definitely mm-hmm. uh, is related to something. And I wanted to contrast that a little bit with a much more simple logo, but I would argue one that's equally as prevalent in the um, in the in just the punk rock, skate, street subculture, mm-hmm. and that's... Mm-hmm the logo for the dead Kennedys. So let's mm-hmm, jump in mm-hmm. and uh, and give that a quick listen. If you're a fan of punk music or almost any music, you've likely stumbled upon the dead Kennedys logo. And of course, we're going to have their logo on our episode page. So I'll just describe it really quickly for listeners who may not be familiar with it. Uh, it's only four lines, right? Doesn't get much more simple than that. Mm-hmm. But it's really iconic, and anyone can draw it. You really don't need any uh, artistic experience or talent or anything like that. If you know how to make an X, (laughs) you've got a pretty Mm -hmm. good start, okay? (laughs) So literally, it's an X, then a vertical line that comes down bisecting the X. So it's kind of like an asterisk, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then on the left-hand side, there's a second shorter vertical line that connects the two left line ends to form a D shape. Right. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. then when it's done, you have a D that is pointy and it kisses right up to a letter K. So it's a Mm -hmm. DK sort of uh, visual lockup or or brand here. And then sometimes it has a circle behind it. But the circle isn't encompassing this DK shape. It's actually behind it and just providing a little, uh, you know, aspect of color or texture. So the lines sort of have this energy because they're bursting past the circle. One of the things that you got to love about the Dead Kennedys logo is anyone can draw it. Mm-hmm. It's it's iconic, but it's also very simple. And the guy that's claimed to design it, Winston Smith, is that his name? Yep, yep. Okay, so he did a couple other bits for the dead Kennedys and their associates. And, you know, he kind of had a little bit of an unconventional way of working, just like uh, Arturo Vega did, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the other logos that he did was for Alternative Tentacles, Uh which was the self-run record label of the dead Kennedys. I mean, they're not going to be on a major label, Todd. I mean, they're sticking it to the man. And uh, so Winston Smith wasn't really a logo designer. Like he designed logos, but he was really a fine artist. And there is something that when it comes to their work that um, that all fine artists do. And uh, in this case, with his logo design, (laughs) Winston Smith was was no exception. Let's give this clip a quick listen. (laughs) Okay. 
This guy was a straight baller, man, because he also signed this logo. <laughs> it's a logo. <laughs> and so his initials are really small in an empty area in the bottom of the border of this logo. There's a little WS. Um, so I think it's great because when I was looking more closely at this logo, it reminded me of how where um, when American coins get minted, they always put a letter for where the coin was actually struck because there are, of right. course, different mints in different parts of the country. So in a weird way, yes, it looks like a presidential seal, but it also looks like it could be on a coin of some sort. Maybe it wasn't. Mm -hmm. I'm not aware of that. I've never seen that. But I thought it was great that it kind of... Um, sort of riffs on the presidential seal, but also riffs on American currency in a way, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. You know, money being the almighty God or whatever. Hey, Todd, uh, speaking of signing stuff, did you pay our tab from our last visit here for our episode recording? How about we take a minute, stroll over to the bar to sort out some quick business, and we'll meet you back here. Just a few. Sounds good. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading! Hi, while we have your attention, if you want to learn more about us and the podcast, there are a few ways to do it. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. All of that is spelled out. No numbers. Kind of a long URL, so do yourself a favor and bookmark it. Once you're there, you can find links to more information about the subjects in this episode, our episode archive, and information about both of us. Wait, we do want people to visit, right? Well... Oh, and look for us on social media. You can find those links on our website as well. And while we're at it, if you have a friend who you feel will dig on our rambling, tell him or her what we're up to. While we can't guarantee that they will remain your friend, we can guarantee that they will listen to at least 30 seconds of whatever episode you send them the link to. <laughs> That's being a little shameless. And speaking of being shameless, it wouldn't be a proper ask if we didn't mention that if you like what you hear, you can also make a donation via our website. We have a Nigerian prince handling all transactions for us. In fact, he told us to mention that we have stickers to mail to anyone who donates $10 or more. Are we done? We're done. We're done. All right, so episode 24, I think we released that just right before Halloween. So we picked yeah. uh, a, a classic genre of movie posters, horror posters, and particularly B-movie horror posters. And the we best. quickly, we quickly got to a common illustrator that we both love. Yes, right? yes. The one and only, never to be duplicated in anyone's lifetime, Reynold Brown. Like, we both were talking about how much we love his work. Right, right. And so I chose the movie Tarantula, which is an epic piece of celluloid. It is. Second only to Airplane. Correct, correct. Uh, and, you know, the funny thing is, like, Reynolds Brown, if you look at most of his B-movie horror posters, they rely on kind of a touch of phobias, which the, the movies <laughs> did. And sure, also, we, sure. we joked a little bit about the wonkiness of his scale of things. And I, I'm, oh, yeah. I ain't taking nothing away from the guy. He was he did great work. And there was, there had to be reason for that scale wonkiness. But in Tarantula, I think I drew a little bit of a clearer point here. Let's listen to the clip. I'll describe the poster a little bit here. It depicts a mob trying to escape a giant 100-foot-tall tarantula. I can't imagine why. I know, I know. I mean, you know, people are afraid of regular-sized tarantulas. That actually 
is the second most popular phobia. I looked it up, uh, is arachnophobia. Is the first most popular phobia fear of our podcast? Uh, it has to have a fancy Latin name, but yeah, something oh, like that. Oh, 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 podcast of whatever Pod- phobia. Podcast of phobia, yeah. Yeah, right, got okay, it. Okay, so giant tarantula. In the tarantula's pinchers, it's clenching a helpless damsel who is, she's wearing like a flowy dress, so she's showing some leg too, but but she's kind of in the pinchers. And I would say, you know, like we talked about, similar to some of Rental Brown's other posters, including 50-Foot Woman, there's a little hocus-pocus going on with the scale here. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, the, the, the spider is at least four times larger than three-story buildings that are in the same scene. Yet the woman in the pinchers is kind of correct compared to the size of the stars in the foreground. So speaking of the stars in the foreground... There are two figures, one representing John Ager and another representing Mara Corday. Look, Elliot, they are so terrified that they are literally running out of the frame of the illustration of this tarantula. And they're running towards the type that mentions their name, which I think is kind of a clever device. Yeah, absolutely. So, Todd, we can agree that uh, <laughs> even when Reynolds Brown may be was doing a little bit of wrong. He could, in, in reality, truly do no wrong. I mean, the scale wonkiness, Correct. sure. Correct. So the poster I chose was from, I would argue, your movie. Certainly mm-hmm. as far as, like, movies go, like the, the mm-hmm. actual final product. Without a doubt, you have a better movie as a, mm. as a piece of cinema, I think. Well, Maybe. Uh, yeah, I, okay. You know, from, it, like, the, both the effect. They're both really good. Yeah, they're both great in their own way i would say though the poster i zeroed in on again uh, sort of like the iwo jima image i guarantee mm-hmm. everybody knows what the attack of the 50 foot woman poster looks like i mean yeah this thing has been everywhere over the years in fact lasting imprint hasn't yeah without question in fact uh, let's give this clip a listen real quick where we we talk about that the poster just to give you some like quick accolades here the poster was actually ranked number eight on the 25 best movie posters ever by premiere magazine so this is like an iconic thing right I would like to see the seven above it. Yeah, yeah. I would too. I would Ghostb- too. Actually. If Ghostbusters is not one of those seven, then there is nothing right in this world. And if Airplane isn't also one of those seven. God, I know. I know. You can't trust Hollywood. We've had this discussion yeah, before. I know. I know this is, well, we could, that, that's a whole that's podcast a unto itself. Thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, this poster shows a woman. Far larger than 50 feet in height, as you mentioned. (laughs) Straddling a highway overpass that snakes into the foreground with the skyline behind her of the city against Mm -hmm. a bright yellow background. Mm -hmm. So she's dressed in a sort of bikini top and short sort of tennis skirt type of bottom, which is the same costume this woman wears in the film. Okay. Where does a 50 foot woman buy clothing that size? Well, apparently, at least when what I remember from the movie, it was sort of like the bed sheets that she was oh, when she was bedridden okay. when she started. But still, those would have to be massive bed sheets for her to fit into when she's 50 feet tall because they're wrapping around her waist and wrapping around her chest. So I don't know if this was like, you know, Superman's baby blanket and it stretched and grew as he did. Mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. Todd. I I think it goes without saying, um, there are some holes in the plot. So Todd, of course, in that poster, we have our 50-foot woman who is, uh, as we talk about in the episode, much larger, in fact, than 50 feet, if anyone knows the relative scale of uh, other human beings and uh, and cars and things of that nature. And speaking of cars, um, you know, I would say... Uh, Ronald Brown, certainly he, he was amazing in the sense of he was a, a fine draftsman. He did mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of spot on work that was to scale and very, very detailed. But then he 
did things for dramatic effect, I would say. I think our mm-hmm. scale change mm-hmm. is one of those things. But uh, mm-hmm. he also was uh, an illustrator for, among other clients, Popular Science Magazine. And uh, why don't we give that a quick listen so we can learn more about some of the work he did with Popular Science. Yeah. Okay, here we go. But mm-hmm. another iconic magazine still around today is popular science. And he, I think, Mm. due to the fact that he was a draftsman, as we've talked about, he did several popular science covers. Now, as luck would have it, I have a popular science book that is Mm -hmm. like 150 years of covers and topics. And so I dug into this book, and lo and behold, it has several of his um, covers in it. One is great. It's... uh, Something like a, uh, a family in a convertible sedan and there was some sort of rooftop parking situation like a parking garage and it's uh-huh. dangling almost horror movie style or suspense movie style off of the, the precipice off the edge of the roof of this building. And the the headline is something like, if I remember correctly, could this happen to you? <laughs> and that makes oh, me... I, I've seen that, yeah. yeah. It's like they're driving off the building or something. Yeah, like and it may, I'm like, yeah. a, is this like a story about brake pads? Like, what is this? <laughs> you know, it, it, there, it begs further inquiry. So you, you just were kind of tying together the pop culture imprint of 50 foot woman poster and popular science. So Reynold Brown had a hand in all of those things. And you know, Elliot, I love a golden thread. I love a thread that you ties do. things together. You do. I do. And, and Hollywood is full of them. Um, the thing <laughs> among other things <laughs> of among other golden things. Um, I was talking a little bit about the leading lady from Tarantula, whose name is Mayor Corday. And she took about a 20-year break from making movies. But, well, here, I'll let me tell the story, okay? Let's jump into it. All right, but the real winner in all of this is our leading lady, Stevie, played by Mara Corday. She ended up marrying an actor, I don't know if you remember, a guy named Richard Long. He was in 77 Sunset Strip. He was in the Big Valley Mm -hmm. and did a million other guest appearances. Anyway... She gotten out of showbiz, like, pretty soon. I mean, once you've done Tarantula, what else can you do? You really can't do anything. But she had an old showbiz friend, a guy named Clinton Eastwood, that offered her a chance to get back in the movies. Um, so gave her a little tiny role in The Gauntlet. And then she had a brief, but I would say very significant role in the famous Sudden Impact movie of 1983 so do you, you remember the movie elliot oh yeah yeah the diner remember, scene yeah yeah, yeah, the di- yeah okay do you remember are you what do you remember the line that harry says let me see the detective harry callahan yeah that's the well it's iconic yeah go ahead make my day make my day yeah yes. did he fire six shots or only five the the person that he is talking to is holding a gun to Mayor Corday's head. She oh. is the waitress who tried to get his attention by pouring like a thousand gallons of sugar in his coffee. Yeah, because he was a regular there. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and she was tipping him off that something was amiss. You know, I love these episodes about B-movie, lowbrow stuff. You know, simple illustration, graphic design, really bold. But then our next episode, episode 25, we talked about TV show openers. Yep. And we talked about ones that, that really broke the mold. And mm-hmm. the, for the time and still, great little mini movies. And you told me and the listeners about a show on HBO called Carnival, which I thought, first of all, it sounds like they did everything perfectly, right? Starting with the music. It's an amazing show, yes, yes, the music. How could we forget about the music? So, Todd, let's jump into this clip where I give a little bit of background, much to your delight, if I recall correctly, about uh, where the music came from for these opening credits. This title sequence was created by a shop in Southern California called A52. So A52 is a visual effects and design company in Los Angeles, And um, in addition to the very rich visuals, there was this amazing music 
from Wendy Melvoin and Lisa Coleman. Um, so they were the musicians for this episode. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, okay, so then you definitely have piqued my interest, Elliot, because you know where Wendy and Lisa came from, right? You know how they got their start. It wasn't Carnival? Well, no. Um, they were hired by His Purple Highness. Ah. They were, they okay. were close associates to Prince, and they were part of Prince and the Revolution. And great, great musicians, great musical families, still very uh, productive today. But I didn't know that they did the Carnival, uh, Carnival opening. So now you really got my interest, Pete. So, Todd, obviously there was um, a little bit of inspiration that the musicians needed to follow. But, of course, music is certainly an important part of credits, but it's not everything. Of course, there needs to also be a visual driver. And in the Mm -hmm. case of Carnival, Mm -hmm. what is so amazing about these opening credits is the way you mentioned a minute ago, Golden Thread, the Mm -hmm. way that the designers and editors of this TV show opener, the way they were able to stitch together all of these artifacts of the time period, the Depression era, Dust Bowl, part of the United States, but also flavor it with a little something else that uh, gives a nod to the mysticism underlying the show. Yeah, I love the device that they used and uh, you told us a little bit about that as well as the show so let's hear let's hear you go into a little bit about how tarot cards were used the opening title sequence itself begins with a deck of tarot cards so if you think about something mystical i mean tarot cards are just one of these iconic props right we've we even if we don't know everything about them you know just like playing cards or some of these other things when you see tarot cards you know what they are and you generally know sort of the the setting in which they're producing themselves right 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 so these tarot cards a deck of tarot cards starts to fall into this the sand you know against the dust bowl right so the sandy Mm -hmm. background this is when things very quickly start to get remarkable so the camera, like, so you're, you as the viewer, the camera, the vantage point, moves in and starts to enter inside of one card. And a whole world opens up, presenting layers of artwork and footage from iconic moments of the American Depression era. Soup lines, building the Golden Gate Bridge, Jesse Owens and Babe Ruth, these iconic uh-huh. sports figures. Okay. So then the camera kind of backs up and sweeps out and moves into a different card. And it repeats this several times. And the viewer is there coming in and out of all these different layers within these tarot cards. You know, one of the things we quickly saw as a common thread here uh, between both of our TV show openers, they both came from HBO, which is fantastic. HBO does great programming. Yep. And obviously they care a lot about the the little mini movies that happened before the the main attraction. And if you remember, I was talking about one of my favorite shows, 6 Feet Under. Uh-huh. You turned me on to that show originally. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And um I talked about the producer and creator Alan Ball and when he went to pitch the show at HBO, he got an interesting note back from the executive producer. I don't know if you remember that, Ellie, but do you want to hear a clip from that? Yeah, jog my memory. Okay, here you go. Alan Ball was just coming off the huge success of American Beauty, if you remember that, in 1999. He had written and directed American Beauty, which was also a great movie, heavily influential, and he had this idea of a family-run funeral home that was sort of the foundation of these kind of crazy stories. Death brought people together. And so he took his first draft to HBO and met with Carolyn Strauss, who was uh, head of HBO programming at the time. And her quote was, you know, this is really, really good. I love these characters. I love these situations, but it feels a little safe. 
could you just make it a little more fucked up? Okay, so I could go on and on about the Six Feet Under opening credits. Well, we both agreed that HBO was putting some dollars behind these and really driving a great creative product. And if you remember, I referenced a site called The Art of the Title. Everybody should check that out. It's yes. a wonderful collection of, uh, of show openers. And, you know, no discussion of HBO would be complete without talking about dollars. Right, Elliot? Oh, man. Money, money, money. That's right. Episode 26 was about secret codes. Secret codes hidden in plain sight, Elliot. Like on and money. I, yes. Like on money. And... Um, I think I dropped a lot of knowledge bombs on that one, but one of my favorite bits was explaining why there are no living people on currency. Oh, I love this story. It was great. Okay, here you go. You know, what's interesting, though, is uh, there's a reason that there are no living people on our currency. Did you know that? Mm-mm. Okay. Let me give you just a little tidbit of this. This because I'm always looking for the drama. You know that. Is this like an assassination plot? Like, do you never no, want to no. be? No. Oh, no, 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 no. oh, oh. Um, they were issuing. It was like the third issue of some notes, some five cent notes, as a matter of fact. And Congress said to the bureau, "We want to honor uh, William Clark, the famous expedition explorer of Lewis and Clark fame, mm-hmm. by putting his portrait on this note." And when the new design arrived at the superintendent of national currency, his desk, there was a note on there that read, you know, where the portrait would go, Clark. So, unfortunately, the superintendent's name was Spencer Clark. And he took this as bold direction to add his face to the bill. What? (laughs) He added his face to the bill. (laughs) and, And it was printed... Really? Congress, yes. Yeah, true story. So Congress got mad, of course, because they're like, why are you doing this? You know, they played a little looser with the rules back then. So now, obviously, I had a lot of fun researching some of the theories of, of our currency. Yes. One of the things we talked about was a really common symbol called the Eye of Providence, the floating eye. And... You know, there was a lot of, oh, is it a Masonic symbol? Is it a blah, blah symbol? Is it the Illuminati? Blah, blah, blah. And and the, the short answer, I believe, is yes. Yeah, it is. Uh, as a matter of fact, this kind of explains they were sort of everywhere, but right under our eyes. Here you go. Take a listen. All right. So you talked about the Eye of Providence being a Masonic symbol. It is widely used as a Masonic symbol, but it wasn't used until the late 18th century. So our money was actually created before then. So was it used as a symbol for the Masons? Yeah, but it was used for a lot of other things too. And it was really just kind of part of the aesthetic of the late 18th century. That was more than anything. So they just loved eyeballs. Everybody just loves the one eye, yeah, in mm. the triangle. Okay. So, speaking of other things, I don't know if you've checked the outside of your house, Elliot, on the front walk to see if there's yeah. some mysterious symbols drawn on there. Well, um, I haven't. Now you're making me slightly paranoid because I'm thinking the Illuminati is coming. Yeah. And uh, no, but oh, a I- group. Closer to our hearts. Yes, yes. The good old-fashioned hobo. One yes. of our favorite typefaces and one of our favorite lifestyles. Yes, yeah, yes. I, I love the when you talked about the, the symbol background. Mm-hmm. We talk about it completely in, in our episode. But hobos had a very unique way of communicating that, again, just like you mentioned with the Illuminati symbols on, uh, on money are really hidden in plain sight and they were there for everyone to see but really only revealed themselves to the certain group of people who were looking for them. Right. Let's hear about that. The hobos traveled across a very large piece of real estate, basically the United (laughs) States, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, so they 
needed, some of these just basic necessities of life. So if you're coming into a town and you're a traveler on foot, or maybe you've come in, uh, you've hopped a train and you've come into town, you need to know where can you camp safely? Mm-hmm. Or where could you get a bite to eat? Mm-hmm. Or if you're approaching a, a house, will you get some sort of handout? Or is there a mean dog that's going to chase you? <laughs> and so these notions, this was sort of a secret code that could be left in plain sight that the average person would never pick up on. So, Todd, we uh, learned a little bit about the alphabet. And, um, you know, there's always the truth. Like, you talk about the symbols on your uh, dollar bills. Um, I wouldn't mm-hmm. know what a dollar bill looks like because, you know, whenever we go to the bar, you seem to be the one who always has them, which is mm. one of the reasons I keep uh, hanging out. But I digress. Mm. Those, you know, those are real. And then the the reason they're there, you know, it's... It's maybe truthful, but maybe there's a little bit of fantasy to it. You know, who can say? Okay, I don't. Okay, this you, we might be being monitored. Just careful what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Well, I I've coated the walls in tin foil before we started recording. Okay, good. good yeah, good, yeah. Good. So, so we're, we're to set. protect you from hobos, mm-hmm. the... <laughs> hobo radiation and hobo yeah. eavesdropping. That's exactly right. The there's just one problem with the alphabet. It might not be. All it's uh, all it's cracked up to be. Oh, sorry. I need to. Don't don't say that. Don't say that. Well, the problem is I've already said it here, and I'll I'll prove it. Can we just go to a clip real quick? Okay. Yeah. Let's do that. Good. 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 All right. So far, this is sounding pretty good. In fact, I'll go one step further. So, the Webster's Third New International Dictionary also supplies a listing of hobo signs under the entry for hobo. So like things are great, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Think about mm-hmm. we have we have ample paper trail. We have 150 years of, of documentation. So apparently, in spite of all this, we don't know if any of these symbols were actually used by real hobos. <laughs> so it's it's a documented history of just documented history, right? Like right. It may not have existed and. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, people just sort of fell in love with the notion, and and kind of like our friend Bigfoot, it just kind of took on a life of its own and and perpetuated itself. All right, so man, can you believe two seasons? Um, we had some really fun episodes for season two, and it was great for me, Elliot, to go back and uh, listen to some of our conversations, some of the dumb stuff that we laughed at there <laughs> right, uh, right. And, and some of the some of the cool things that we uncovered and i bet our listeners would like to to hear maybe more about next season yeah so uh we are hard at work on pulling our topics together for season three we are always open to suggestions so if you have one please uh feel free to jump onto our website or hit us in our social media channels and uh and we will respond we'll get back to you we're really curious about what resonates with listeners and and also what you guys want to hear about next you know we todd we've gotten a lot of uh a lot of notes about how people appreciate the research we do mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and we appreciate the listeners who appreciate uh, the 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 stuff that's going into this it's uh it's something ellie and i love doing and we're really glad to see other people are digging it too absolutely so reach out and between now and then um please enjoy our bar snacks if you haven't had a chance to go back in and listen to our mini uh between season episodes called bar snacks we talked to some friends please do that and hopefully the snacks will uh they'll help tide you over until we jump in with both feet, I guess four feet. How many feet does our little yeah, mascot yeah. guy? He only has two feet. Yeah, that's okay. right. But there's, but there would be eight legs on a bar stool, uh, like tarantula. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There, what a great All wrap right. up there. Well, folks, we look forward to seeing you back here in the bar with us very, very soon.
Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com.